Looking back on Governor Bill Lee's first year in office with Tennessean Beat Reporters. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of December 30th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. This week on the podcast, we're going to do a, something a little bit different that is essentially looking back at the previous year uh, that we have been covering. So we decided to, uh, instead of just Joel and I talking about this year with uh, Bill Lee's first year in office, we would bring in some of our colleagues at the Tennessean who have also helped us cover his administration. So while Joel and I are covering um, a lot that the governor's office is doing and and other state departments, um, our colleagues have also been covering all all sorts of issues where their beats intersect with uh, the governor's office and his administration. So um, that's obviously things like education and criminal justice reform and uh, the the way the governor's faith impacts how he um, leads this, this state. And we thought, you know, hearing from them what this year has been like working with the governor's office, um, the, the topics they've been covering, that they would obviously be the best people to talk to about that. While many of you may have heard some of these things that we highlight in this week's podcast, it serves as a good reminder of kind of what went on throughout the year, as well as kind of look ahead of what could happen in 2020. And one note, we recorded most of these interviews at the beginning of December. So in case there are some time references, keep that in mind. And now we have with us Jason Gonzalez, the Tennessean's education reporter. Jason, thanks for coming. Thank you. So we want to talk about this year in education. Um, it was something Billy said he was going to do on the campaign trail, pass education savings accounts, which we refer to as school vouchers. That is something that had never before been done in the state. Um, it had been attempted in the past, but never succeeded. So tell us about what happened. You're right on that. And uh, it is something that the state has tried to pass for numerous years, been held up in the House many times. And for the first time this year, the House passed it uh, by one vote is extremely controversial. And uh, then House Speaker Glenn Cassidy held up the vote for more than 40 minutes uh, to get that flip vote. For, for, for listeners, give a reminder of what, you know, sort of the large package was. It came out uh, essentially in Governor Billy's State of the State address, his idea, but what was the actual rollout of the proposal that the legislature voted on? So just to, to go back for a second, at first it was a much larger bill than uh, what was passed by the House. Uh, it had numerous uh, districts in it, and when the the House finally passed it, it only included Memphis and Nashville, um, those schools with priority schools and, and the two largest uh, urban districts in the state. Uh, it also, at the last minute, excluded Knoxville, uh, which was how that Last vote, vote got uh, right. added from Jason Zachary, who didn't want uh, Knoxville to be included in it. Right, right. Uh, so it, it definitely went through numerous iterations throughout uh, the life of the bill. And uh, by the time it, it finally passed, it was uh, much narrower than what the governor had originally proposed. And I think throughout the the discussion and the debate of it, there was a lot of confusion about what was in and out of the bill 
Um, we as reporters are often asking the administration to clarify things. We are told to essentially go to, you know, um, the the members who were sponsoring the legislation and, and watch some of the meetings to see kind of what was happening because there were were differences between the House and the Senate version. For example, I know in, in I think it was the House version, they really tried to have um, uh, a, a couple of uh, what what was the one provision related to the rural funding uh, that they wanted to you know if you had a a uh, a district or a school in a district that uh, was quote failing uh, that you could receive some additional funding through this whereas the Senate didn't really care about that provision um, because they had enough votes on the front end. Right. It was a, a hold harmless provision, but also uh, it was supposed to be for those districts that were going to be subject to the program, uh, although in the House version, it ended up um, being something where every rural district would have been uh, eligible for it. Everything's changed so much uh, under the various iterations of this bill. And what you finally saw, as I said, was something that was was much uh, narrower than what, what the uh, governor had proposed and, and had a lot more add-ons from the House and, and Senate than um, I think was ever expected. And it was, it was originally going to be implemented uh, a couple years down the road. Now that has been moved up to the governor saying impl- the school voucher program in which um, certain qualifying families and, and Shelby and Davidson counties can uh, receive about $7,000 plus a year per student to use for private school tuition instead of going to public school. So that program is set to now be implemented um, in fall 2020. At least when you talk to the governor's office, it is. But then when you talk to lawmakers, some of them want to press the brakes on that. Right. So there's right. there's there's still a little bit of um, disagreement there on what should be done. We have seen a bill filed already. It was originally filed by some Democrats in the House to repeal this legislation. We have since seen, um, at the time of this recording, at least one Republican lawmaker, that would be freshman Representative Bruce Griffey, sign on to that legislation. He does have his own personal beef at this point with the governor. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether more Republicans sign on to that. So another um, school choice, as they like to call it, initiative the governor had this year was um, essentially making it easier for charter schools to um, open up and operate here in the state. Can you talk a little bit about that legislation? The legislation that was passed will create a charter school commission that's going to take over the powers of uh, the State Board of Education. And so they would uh, hear all appeals from local districts, and then they would manage any schools that uh, are rejected by the local districts. And, and so that the State Board has been doing that for a number of years, um, ever since, I believe, the, the Great Hearts decision. And that was something where the State Board t- took over and uh, said, OK, we're going to hear whether or not the district has erred in its decision. And the state board decides whether this is in the best interest of the local community. So that charter school commission will take over, and that's something that the governor was able to get passed this year. Another big issue that the governor pushed, at least in his state of the state address and even alluding to on the campaign trail, was what later became known as the GIVE Act. Uh, give listeners a reminder of what that was and what it actually does. So the GIVE Act is $25 million for uh, – it, it's – all schools, but uh, to expand vocational and technical training uh, for for students. I, I think the big focus really is on getting rural students the training they need to be successful uh, after high school. 
And the, the GIVE acronym standing for the Governor's Investment in Vocational Education. I yes. Which has been an issue that uh, Governor Billy has talked about, at least, you know, trying to get folks not to concentrate entirely on four-year institutions, but also, uh, you know, uh, preparing them for alternative um, work, uh, uh, you know, ideas in the future. And uh, we, we had some trouble finding out exactly how much that investment actually was. That was actually one of the first things he came out with. And yeah, kind of uh, has been a theme throughout the year and, and throughout other beats, but uh, trying to get information out of the administration about specifics. Yeah, we, we eventually figured out uh, that this was set to be a $25 million um, plan project, but it, it did take us um, actually asking repeatedly from the governor's office to find out that information. And then, Jason, uh, lastly, we wanted to talk a little bit about some just larger issues with the Department of Education. Uh, I know, you know, there's been several, um, I guess you would call them minor issues, but they certainly have cropped up throughout the year. Right, right. Um, and so throughout the year, the State Department of Education has been dealing with staffers leaving, um, numerous spokespeople who we uh, work in contact every day uh, leaving. So we've, I think we've been through uh, several at this point. Um, and a couple weeks ago, as you said, as the, the State Department's working through the rollout of the education savings account, um, Penny Schwinn, uh, the Commissioner of Education, said that these ESAs would be federally taxable. Um, a big question came out and, and a lot of uh, uh, back and forth whether that was true. Um, at this point, the question still remains uh, somewhat unanswered uh, because the IRS has not given really clear guidance on that, although um, there is precedent in other states, but uh, it, it it's still a question that's very much out there. As we look ahead to next year, what can we expect from uh, the governor and and the administration related to education? So the the governor during the budget hearings with uh, the commissioner asked uh, quite a bit about teacher pay raises. Uh, it's something that uh, his predecessor had embraced, and so we'll see whether or not that's in in his budget and how much. Um, he's also indicated he wants to take a look at the state's education funding formula, which sends money to local districts for operations. And uh, there hasn't been any movement on that, but it's something that. He wanted to take a look at on the campaign trail, and it's uh, it could happen. And I think, Natalie, one of the big unknowns is whether the House really uh, decides to do anything, at least the new leadership in the House decides to do anything related to uh, the controversial ESA bill. Uh, you've got uh, the the now former House Speaker, uh, Glenn Cassida, who fully embraced ESAs, uh, and now the chamber is led by um, Cameron Sexton, who voted against the bill. Uh, we haven't gotten any indication so far of, of maybe will, will there be a, a change in course, but we have heard at least, hey, let's slow down on the implementation of it. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's passed, so that much is done, um, but it it's interesting. I, I, I don't know that if there was some kind of challenge to this, that uh, Speaker Sexton would be willing to go to the lengths that Glenn Cassida did to um, to protect and, and preserve the governor's initiative um, with school vouchers. It, certainly, Glenn Cassida has, has faced a lot of questions about how exactly uh, they finally got this passed in the House. Um, and it doesn't seem like 
at all, Cameron Sexton would be willing to go to bat for this legislation in the same way. Um, but it but it does remain to be seen whether he actually will try to undo it. I don't think we have any indication that he will. Um, he was and he was very quietly against it this past session. He was a member of leadership, but didn't really say much about it. As always, thanks for coming on, Jason, and we'll continue to keep an eye on your beat. Thanks for having me out, guys. We have with us Holly Meyer, the Tennessean's religion reporter, and she's going to talk with us about how faith has impacted Billy's first year in office. He was a candidate who certainly campaigned uh, with his Christian faith as a central part of what he would do as governor and the type of governor he would be uh, and how that would impact his policies. And Holly, since from the time of the campaign, so last fall, throughout this year, has really taken a deep dive into his faith. She has um, talked to him about his church. She has talked to him about his thoughts on a number of issues um, and also written about some of the new um, practices, traditions, day of prayer, new state offices, et cetera, that he has implemented um, that have to that, that pertain to his Christianity. So Holly, walk us through this year um, and what has happened with faith in the state under Billy. Right. Thanks for having me. So one of the big uh, headline grabbing decisions he made was um, to to declare uh, October 10th, a day of prayer and fasting. And I would say that a lot of people uh, welcomed this decision by him. This is something that was well within his authority to do because he wasn't requiring everybody pray or fast, um, but inviting them to join him and his wife in doing so. But as you could imagine, it wasn't met with um, glad news. It was not glad news for, for everybody. Uh, you had uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation raising some concerns about why he was mixing religion and the highest office in Tennessee. You had the local chapter of the um, the group for the, the separation of church and state raising concerns about this, raising questions about, like, what about... Um, uh, atheists in in the state, and what about uh, Jews who had just finished um, uh, a day of prayer and fasting um, at the end of their high holy days? And so that uh, really bubbled to the surface and got people talking. I was able to uh, go to one of the the church um, observances of it. Uh, Creve Hall Church of Christ in Nashville invited me in. And um, they had said that they welcomed um, the governor's decision and they just incorporated it into their regular sort of community uh, prayer event that they do. And so it was just a, a it was a pretty full church, uh, quite a big crowd. And they just spent the hour praying and fasting or well, praying and singing anyway, I should say. Uh, one of the big issues that came up throughout the year was uh, the issue of executions that doesn't necessarily uh, have to do with religion and prayer, but uh, at least uh, there were efforts and ovations from people who were sort of pleading on behalf of, uh, you know, those on death row who were set to be executed to appeal to the governor's faith uh, to see what, you know, uh, whether that might work to get a stay of execution. Uh, evidently, that didn't work in each of the cases. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, that issue. So Christians uh, don't agree, like uh, on, on other issues, they don't agree with, about what the Bible says about the death penalty. Um, some, like the Roman Catholics, um, uh, have said no, it is wrong. Others are um, uh, see it more as a in, in the eye for an eye. 
uh, vein um, of punishment. But so, so religion has been a part of the conversation since executions resumed. Uh, a lot of the activists are uh, motivated by faith. Uh, a lot of the visitors and the volunteers who are building relationships with the inmates on death row are too. And there's been a group that have been trying to appeal to the governor um, to have him come and pray with the men on unit two. And to my knowledge, that has not happened yet. But that continues to be a part of the, the drumbeat as these executions continue to move forward. The governor has had three so far under his watch and will continue to be faced with those decisions um, and having to read clemency petitions as those those move forward. And something else Bill Lee has done this year is he has essentially created a new office of which we have little information uh, on it is called the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Am I getting that right? That's right. And, and, and just he had announced that pretty early on. He announced that in his state of the state. Um, he said, quote, uh, that the office will, quote, help leverage the nonprofit community and help us unleash the potential of all Tennesseans to get involved to not only make lives better for their fellow citizens, but reduce the responsibilities and ultimately the size of government. Uh, since that uh, declaration in his state of the state, there hasn't been too much to come out of that office, has there? Not to my knowledge. Um, I have not been alerted to it, but a little uh, searching around that I did, I, I found out that he he appointed uh, a man named Dave uh, Worland, who is based out of Chattanooga, seems to be relatively well involved in the faith and religion nonprofit community in Chattanooga. Um, so I look forward to finding out more about what that work will be um, and what how how the governor's office sees that that being executed moving forward. And one more thing that I know a number of Christians around the state have opinions on and have weighed in on is the issue of refugees and whether Tennessee uh, will continue to to receive them um, in conjunction with you know the Catholic Church and whatnot. Can you catch us up on where the governor stands on that? We're waiting to find out whether or not Bill Lee is going to opt in to allowing Tennessee to continue to accept refugees. Tennessee has a long history of doing this, uh, of resettling refugees across the state. And uh, what has changed this year is that uh, President Donald Trump has made the decision that state leaders and city leaders have to opt into saying they will accept these. Some um, governors across the country have already done this. You've seen, I believe it was out of Knoxville, where the city council said our city is willing to accept them. Uh, But Governor Bill Lee so far has not made a decision on that. Um, It's a little unclear what the timeline is, but the executive order does put a 90 day clock on part of that process. So we'll hopefully have a decision on that from, from the governor by the end of the year. Otherwise, it's possible that. Tennessee would stop accepting refugees, given that opt-in requirement language that uh, President Trump put into place. And that has been a long-standing uh, uh, fight for uh, Republicans have tried to stop the refugee resettlement program, uh, one in the form of a, a lawsuit that is still making its way through the judicial system. Holly, thanks for catching us up on the religion beat. Thanks for having me, guys. As we continue our look back at 2019, uh, we're here with Brett Kelman, our healthcare reporter for the Tennessee. 
happy to be here. We wanted to just kind of get an idea and a recap of sort of what have been the big issues in healthcare for the governor's first year in office, as well as uh, just issues that you've been reporting about related to state government and uh, Tennessee. Sure. Well, I think there's no question that the governor's big move in the world of health this year has been the submission of the 10-care block grant. This is a very large and very confusing proposal that would effectively rewrite how our state Medicaid program, 10-care, is funded and administered. And if we make this change, Tennessee will be the first state to give increased authority to state officials to run their Medicaid program. It could overhaul health care for almost one-fifth of the state. But at this point, it's just a proposal, and it was only submitted to the feds a couple of weeks ago. We won't really know if it's going to come reality for, well, well into next year. But nothing out of the Lee administration has approached this in scope for what it's attempting to do. And it's been something that you know, conservative lawmakers in the state, I think, have been seeking for years. So it's very interesting to see it at least come to some form of solid fruition. Just to even see it on paper, I think, was a pretty big milestone. But at the same time, there is there hasn't been an open embrace on all sides of this issue, right? You've got Democrats and uh, you've got some of these healthcare advocacy groups who have expressed skepticism and said that this could uh, harm people in a sense. Sure. Um, the, the, the proposal is very, very controversial. And I think it ultimately comes down to how much trust you have in the current leaders of our state government because it grants them more authority, authority they could use for good or authority many are worried they will not use for good. Um, there's also a very simple argument that Tennessee should instead expand Medicaid and that this block grant is a more complicated effort to accomplish less than simply following the footsteps of a majority of other U.S. states and expanding Medicaid to more Tennesseans. And for context, Bill Lee has always been opposed to expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, something his predecessor, uh, former Governor Bill Haslam, was in support of and attempted to do, but was unsuccessful here. Uh, Brett, you you looked through all of the um, the public comments submitted to the state about this plan. Um, you, you and I both also sat through public hearings in which um, people voiced their complaints with it. What was the governor's response and reaction to um, that criticism and those those questions about what could happen under this block grant plan? So in total, I think there were 1,802 public comments that were submitted. Um, by my tally, only 11 were supportive and more than 1,700 of the rest were adamantly opposed. That seems like an incredibly lopsided public response that was largely brushed off by the Lee administration. They've said on multiple occasions that the people who oppose this plan just don't understand it and that they do not believe the public comments represent the actual public sentiment about the plan. And I've also pressed the administration on, okay, so if the public doesn't understand it, why not explain it better? Uh, and they said essentially this isn't part of the, the, the job of this, this public comment period. We're not here to explain things. It's just for uh, this is kind of the requirement uh, of what we have to do in this period of time. So It really raises the question if they see any value in the public comment period. If they think that a large portion of the state doesn't understand the plan, but it's also not worth explaining it to them, and instead it's, a, it's 
sufficient to let them comment on something they supposedly don't understand, who, who benefits from that process? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. Brett, what have been some of the other major stories and, and uh, issues that you've kind of delved in this year uh, for healthcare? Sure. Um, so the block grant is really, really big, but it is certainly not all of Tennessee healthcare. We are a state with very poor health and very serious issues that raise their head in communities every day. Um, in 2019, rural hospitals across Tennessee have continued to collapse. We've lost a few, and we have several other that are on the brink. Our opioid crisis has continued to worsen while many other states have turned a corner. Our deaths are up. Our overdoses are up. All the metrics in which you would judge a crisis are still going the, the wrong way. Um, in addition to that, we have worrisome numbers about mental health in Tennessee. Uh, there's just this is not a healthy place, and that has not changed in 2019. But there is some effort, in some sense, from the administration to try and at least lay the groundwork for addressing those. And that would be uh, what was teased in the governor's state of the state that wasn't really fully developed throughout the year, uh, known as the Healthcare Modernization Task Force. What is that? Sure. So early in his administration, uh, in his first state of the state, uh, Governor Lee rolled out this plan for a healthcare modernization task force, which would be a meeting of these knowledgeable minds who would tackle many of the larger healthcare issues in Tennessee that were not part of the block grant. Um, and that would presumably be things like the opioid crisis and rural hospitals and access to health insurance, which is a very large issue in the state. Um, however, I don't think the task force was actually functionally formed and announced until September. And at this point, we haven't seen any results out of them. So I think they – it remains to be seen how significant the governor's signature health task force becomes in the role of improving health in Tennessee. And not only was it not announced, it did seem like there was actually an effort to keep it um, a secret. At least in Joel's experience, he had tried to go to a listening session that was essentially trying to get some ideas on what the task force should be focusing on. What what happened there? Well, uh, our colleague Anita Wadwani was in the audience for a morning session. I went for the afternoon uh, and was told I wasn't allowed to sit in on it. Um, there was no real reason given. It was just a uh, meeting of the minds, and there were 75 to 100 people there uh, and just said that this isn't something publicly available. So. Yeah, so it was sort of a bizarre rollout and attempt to, to keep that a secret. But um, I, as far as I know, the, the task force has not yet had a meeting, and we'll, I mean, we're going to plan to follow that into the next year. Uh, one other thing that came up this year, um, the Tennessean had an investigation into um, children losing their their 10 care coverage or, or cover kids, I think is also um, a, another program we have in the state. Can you can you talk just briefly about what that was and what the response was from the administration? Sure. Um, so earlier this year, I want to say about May, uh, me and one of my colleagues, Mike Riker, produced an investigative report focusing on the large number of children who had lost their 10 care or cover kids in coverage over the prior two years. And both of those programs had, had taken a nosedive in enrollment. And there was statewide concern that children being disenrolled, not because they weren't eligible, but because something had gone wrong with their paperwork along the way, and that ultimately kids who should have health insurance no longer did. So me and Mike dove into some very complex data um, and analyzed 
the internal system that TenCare uses to check eligibility and discovered that it didn't work very well. Most of the time, it couldn't figure out if a kid was eligible or not, which meant a lot of the children who lost health insurance lost it under circumstances where it wasn't entirely clear if they were eligible or not. That's just not good. Um, you couple with this with the fact that the number of Tennesseans who don't have health insurance is steadily rising and the number of Tennessee children who don't have health insurance is steadily rising. And it appears we have a system where people who should have government health insurance are losing it and being left with no insurance in a world where having no insurance is very bad. Um, we presented all this publicly. We ran it in the paper. Uh, the governor said he was going to look into it. Nothing's really come from that since then. Uh, his administration has said that the new healthcare modernization task force is going to look at issues of access to health care as part of its laundry list of topics, but nothing concrete has been presented on tackling why so many people and an increasing number of people don't have health insurance. Looking ahead to 2020, uh, obviously we expect some kind of action on on the, the 10 care block grant request, which the federal government essentially has to make a decision on. Uh, I imagine there might be some developments out of the modernization task force. And then y you anticipate some kind of, or I guess we all do, um, uh, recurring discussion on medical marijuana, which seems to be an issue every year, even though uh, the government governor has not openly embraced this idea still. I get the impression that we will have a medical marijuana discussion in the Tennessee legislature every year up until someday when there might be medical marijuana in the state. There are enough advocates for this that I think we can presume it's going to be presented during every legislative session. And we have been told that it will come up again next year. Um, obviously, the path is steep. The, the proposal has never gotten far enough to even get a significant vote on the floor of the legislature, and the governor has said that he would oppose it. But supporters think that this, this effort creeps a little closer to success every year. So it remains to be seen you know, how much further they'll creep. Thanks for your time. Happy to be here. now we have with us Adam Tamburin. He is the Tennessean's justice reporter. Adam, thanks for coming to talk. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about uh, what has been done this year with criminal justice reform. So that was something that Bill Lee, who often on the campaign trail and otherwise talked about his volunteer efforts um, in prisons, he said that criminal justice reform was was going to be a major priority of his. Um, I remember even before he was elected back in a summer study hearing uh, in fall 2018, um, now House Majority Leader William Lambert, he, he wasn't in that position then, had said he anticipated there to be um, a lot of criminal justice reform legislation forthcoming uh, in the in the coming years. He said 2019, there might be sort of piecemeal efforts and, and changing a few things here and there, but they expected more to come in 2020. So let's focus on what did actually happen this year and did anything happen when it comes to uh, making meaningful changes in the criminal justice system here. Well, I think that prediction has so far um, turned out to be true as, as far as we know. I think in 2019, um, the administration was really more dipping its toe in the water, making some changes around the edges um, that were received well by advocates who are who want to see um, criminal justice reform in Tennessee. But I think there are those kind of low-level tweaks that could be a preview, um, certainly advocates hope, of what's to come. 
So let's talk about what some of those those changes that were made, some of those mm-hmm. bills that did pass the legislature this year. So one of the things that criminal justice advocates um, were really excited about was eliminating the state's expungement fee, which makes it easier for people um, of all incomes to um, get their criminal record clear if they um, meet a, a series of court requirements to do so. Um, and there has also been a lot of funding put in, millions put into um, education in state prisons. Uh, the administration pointed out earlier this year that 30% of the state's prison population doesn't have uh, high school education. So there was uh, investments in um, education to bring people up to their GED and then also in technical um, equipment to get people college level certifications uh, in tech jobs. I I think on the expungement level, that's been an interesting thing that has been worked on and chipped away at for years. I I recall, you know, when I first started here in 2016, even some bills on that, uh, largely coming from Democrats who have uh, seemingly gotten Republicans on board with this effort. Um, Senator Ramesh Ackberry is one of the main proponents, and I know she talked about the governor about that idea this year, and he kind of, you know, jumped on board. So um, that certainly is one that has gotten bipartisan support. Yeah, I mean, I think what you see is, um, particularly because there's this cover from the the, the federal level of the Trump administration with the First Step Act, um, there's this real bipartisan support for, for going further. And that's something that everybody said uh, earlier this year when the governor put out his, his kind of more modest uh, reform package uh, was, this is a great first step, let's keep going. And as a matter of fact, the governor has announced um, this group of experts that is currently working uh, and they hope to be done by the end of the year with a slate of recommendations for, uh, I think, more meaty criminal justice reforms in sentencing reform and looking at shrinking the prison population uh, that we could see play out uh, in 2020 and beyond. Are you referring to his criminal justice task force? Right. To my knowledge, none of those meetings have been open. Have you been able to? I actually, I did go to one. Okay. It was so kind they, of like an informational. Had, yeah, like a dedicated, what okay. they call a study yeah, yeah. hall for so reporters So that, that was only. the study hall for reporters, but the, the meetings that have been ongoing, have those been open for for reporters to attend or announced? They have been, they have been more um, kind of happening piecemeal from what I understand. Um, but yeah, we, we went to this and it, it wasn't just for reporters. It was for like the kind of this broad group. Uh, and it was a lot of people in the room and they had a hundred um, plus uh, PowerPoint presentation. I brought it with me. <laughs> you can maybe hear the thwack <laughs> on the table there. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the, the data that they were looking at is a, was centered around um, the spike in the prison population here in Tennessee and how a lot of that is driven by drug offenses and what they call non-person offenses, so offenses that, that, that didn't target a person um, or people. Uh, and there certainly seems to be interest among that group uh, at looking around, looking at sentencing reform and other ways to shrink that, other ways to increase parole and probation. And, and oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask, Natalie, do you remember the bill that came up this session that had the ACLU and was it Americans for Prosperity or Beacon kind of joining forces and it was related to criminal justice? That was kind of one of those signs where you've got people who are normally on opposite ends of the spectrum coming together to work on an issue. I think it was voter rights yeah, restoration. So, so there was, yeah, there was a voter rights restoration bill. They, they brought in Matthew Charles to, to right. come speak to some folks at the legislature about that. And, um, and I think just the fact that that was an idea that came up, but it clearly didn't gain enough momentum to you know survive its initial push 
indicates how hard of a, a, a multi-year effort this is going to be for uh, you know significant change on criminal justice. But as Adam mentioned, these conservative groups jumping in does give some cover to legislators who ordinarily wouldn't ever want to side with the ACLU on something. The, the Beacon Center and Americans for Prosperity um, pushing these these efforts, as you mentioned, is is something that will propel it in, in a way that it probably wouldn't have that kind of momentum otherwise. Well, yeah, you get the sense that um, that it's almost like trying to get people um, acclimated to a, a different language, the language of criminal justice reform. And so, I mean, I think we saw this even stretching back into um, Governor Haslam's mm. tenure of kind of like introducing these ideas and testing the water and seeing. So I, I think it's, it's too soon to say moving forward how far uh, the state will go. But I think um, you see in the kind of the vocabulary they're introducing, maybe where the administration is looking um, uh, to go uh, in the coming months. Well, and I, I would certainly think that the state right now and the governor in this upcoming session is not going to come out with a major reform like something that we saw in Florida, uh, where, uh, you know, I think it was in hundreds of thousands of, of Florida uh, former prisoners uh, got the right to vote. Or in, I, I think it's somewhere in the Midwest, maybe Kansas, where they um, uh, commuted uh, hundreds of people sentences all at once. I would not anticipate that happening here in Tennessee, because you're saying uh, you've got to lay the groundwork first before you get the okay on the larger issues. Right. I know um, Governor Lee has talked about being more open to looking at commutations throughout his term mm -hmm. instead of doing what um, executives usually do and waiting to the very end. Um, but yeah, I, I think what we're looking at now is is, is more kind of priming the pump uh, for broader uh, reforms later on. And, and no, no sentences have been commuted this year by Governor Lee? I don't believe so, okay. no. Adam, um, we talked a little bit about it with with Holly Meyer um, about executions that uh, the gov governor Lee has had to decide on this year. Can you give any additional insights? Essentially, you know, uh, he's going to have to be making this decision throughout. One would expect throughout his time in office. Yeah, I mean, there there have been um, at the time of this recording uh, uh, five total in Tennessee. That's three, right. Um, a third one. Uh, during uh, Governor Lee's term is, is scheduled uh, to happen uh, Thursday night, December 5th. Hasn't happened yet. Um, but it, it is an issue he's going to continue um, to, to grapple with. There are more scheduled for next year. Uh, the Attorney General has asked the Supreme Court to set another slate of dates. Uh, so far, he has not intervened. Uh, and I think there's a sense uh, that if he hasn't done so yet, I, I, I'm not sure that he would um, moving forward, but it will be something that he continues to, 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 to face as, as we move forward. And um, briefly, after having attended one of those study halls of sorts, what, what kind of insight can you give us into what the governor will likely do uh, this coming year? Well, I mean, I think... Uh, it's like I said, it, it's it's so massive. I, the the presentation covered so much ground that it's it's really hard to predict exactly what might might come up next year. Um, but I, I think it kind of it runs the gamut of the things that we've started to hear more about, about um, our sentences too long, are people going back into prison because of um, technical violations on their parole that could be maybe uh, recalibrated or tweaked? Uh, is there enough mental health treatment um, to address maybe root causes of the put people in prison to begin with. Uh, and uh, I know that one of the things uh, Governor Lee has done in the previous year is invest more money in the state's recovery courts to 
look at how treatment for addiction and mental health issues uh, maybe could divert people out of the criminal justice system. So I think it's it's safe to say that um, he could go further in those in those regards, but it's 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 really going to be um, a waiting game to see what his package is uh, for uh, 2020. But I think it's safe to say that also that it, it's not going to be just 2020. This is going to be something that is strategically kind of paced out throughout his term. Well, and it seems like it would hardly be shocking if they continue to go along the lines of increasing pay for for you know. Um, uh, guards essentially in the state's prison, as well as maybe paying some more money to address hepatitis C, which has been a recurring problem. Uh, the governor did some of that this year in his current budget. Uh, so again, more topics that may come up in, in the coming months. And, but. and had they not uh, raised pay for correctional officers, Tennessee was the second worst paying in the, in the nation for for correctional officers. So that was a much-needed uh, raise, at least from the perspective of the Department of Corrections, saying we just can't keep people, um, and certainly being understaffed in prisons causes all sorts of problems. Um, so, so, yeah, I think we could maybe even see more staffing addressed yeah. uh, in the future. Um, and, and as you mentioned, Adam, there was uh, money set aside in the budget for the behavioral health safety net, I think, for so mm-hmm. for people who can't afford mental health treatment, right. uh, also for the electronic monitoring indigency fund for people who, who couldn't afford the fees associated with um, using electronic monitoring to get out of prison earlier. Um, so, yeah, I think we probably will see more of that moving forward. Um, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And finally, joining us now is Mike Riker, data reporter with the Tennesseans investigative team. Uh, Natalie, you and Mike teamed up a lot in the last half of the year, really to focus on this issue of TANF. Uh, remind people of kind of what was the main development that you guys discovered and, and some of the uh, other stories that you did in the aftermath. Yeah, so Mike and Anita Wadwani and I have uh, sort of been on the story um, for a, a month or so now towards the end of the year. Essentially, uh, after a report from the conservative Beacon Center came out um, announcing that the state's temporary assistance for needy families program had a reserve that had grown to about $732 million. Um, we started looking into what that meant, why uh, that number had grown so high. And and Mike had done um, some analysis on um how that compares to other states. So Mike, tell us about what you've found. Sure. Uh, We looked at what type of reserves uh, the states around the country built up and Tennessee had uh, by far the largest uh, at 732 million. Uh, The next closest was um, New York. That's right. New York and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And, uh, and so those are states with much larger populations, and it really highlighted how uh, a series of events here in Tennessee have led to this big stockpile and, and raised questions about why, why do we need so much money and could it be used to help people that are, um, that are poor and working families in Tennessee? So the the governor initially, when when we asked him, hey, are are you okay with um, us sitting on this much money that was intended to help poor working families? The the administration's initial response was, uh, yes, we we don't have any plans to use this money until there's some kind of recession or economic downturn. Um, After more stories on this topic and and criticism from both uh, Republicans and Democrats about 
why this this reserve had grown so large. Uh, the governor uh, sort of changed course and said that now he was interested in, in the state developing a plan to spend down some of this money. The legislature subsequently uh, put together a what they call a working group, which is sort of like an ad hoc committee to study potential solutions. Um, Mike, what else do we know about what other states are doing with this type of money or what Tennessee could be doing um, that potentially the, the governor could be on board with? Sure. Uh, Tennessee actually has a lot of flexibility on how it can spend this money. Uh, it needs to fit into some pretty broad categories uh, that the federal government sets out for helping working families. Uh, other states have used it for child care, and Tennessee actually used to use some of the money for child care, but scaled way back. Um, other states use it for job training programs. And uh, there's there's really a whole range of it. Uh, we're coming out with a story pretty soon that takes a look at uh, in more depth what other states are doing. Yeah, and and the governor at the beginning of December um, said that. Uh, a, the plan that had been put forth recently rather abruptly by the Department of Human Services to start spending down some of this money may not actually be the way the state goes that he does want the legislature to be involved in that process. There has certainly been um, maybe some some miscommunication, um, some frustration from the legislature on um, being kept in the dark about why this money has had grown so large and and what DHS plans to do with it. So that's a, a topic we will continue covering into the new year. Uh, thanks for coming on, Mike. Thank you. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, thanks for tuning in. You can find us wherever you get your podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, any other place you can find them. Please continue to rate us. It really helps. John Garcia and Erica Whitney are our podcast producers. You can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next time. 